Welcome to my podcast where I talk about all things related to money, mindset, finance, business, and investing. My name is Royston Kambabachi, qualified accountant with over 30 years' experience in finance and business. Coming from a very humble background, I have continuously challenged the assumptions and the expectations of what I'm capable of achieving for myself and others. Over the years, I've helped hundreds of entrepreneurs to decipher finance and to make more money and to run highly successful businesses. On this podcast, I will share with you tips, strategies, techniques, and tools that you can use to make more money, manage money better, and to maximize your success. In today's episode, I have a very special guest with me. He's a founder, co-founder, investor, entrepreneur, and as a private equity specialist. Welcome to Mike Henneberry. Before I get uh, Mike started, let me give you a brief overview of uh, Mike's uh, journey. So basically, Mike was a key member of the Gresham Private Equity team that led the spin-off from Zurich Financial Services and raised 600 million from 20 large insurance and pension uh, funds between 2003-2006. He's also uh, led some big deals between 2000 and 2007 investing over 200 million and returning over 450 million to investors was also previously founder and co-founder of two startups uh, one is called palio capital from 2020-2013 raising 100 million for a new private uh, credit fund that narrowly missed an ipo in 2012 and subsequently became a europe division largest credit hedge fund uh, Mike, as I said, is also uh, a founder, co-founder, so he's also a big entrepreneur. And Mike uh, is a shareholder of Fabify. Fabify is the platform for apparel brands, basically where you can get really great brands at bargain prices. Check it out, fabify.com, F-A-B-I-F-Y.com. The forecast revenue for Fabify for 2021 is $30 million, and an IPO is planned for 2022 2023. What makes Fabify so special is that uh, all of their, their customers are acquired for less than 10 euro and have repeat purchases of over seven times in one year. That's a quite a bit, man. So 80% of the forecast revenues are from repeat purchases. Most of Fabify operations are actually outsourced. However, all social media performance advertising is designed, planned, and executed in House. Wow. Fabify has given uh, Mike a deep experience to understand of how social media performance and advertising works. Wow. wow. That's quite impressive, man. Uh, he's also the author of a book about his career as an investor and entrepreneur, which is publishing uh, in Q2 2021. It's called Wrestling with Unicorns. Do write it down and do check it out when it comes out. It's also the founding uh, partner of uh, Titan Partners. Uh, which he launched in 2020. It's a B2B consultancy which serves uh, SME owners, managers to boost revenue growth through five pillars. One, innovation. Two, reimagining their business model to harness disruption. Three, investment in digitalization. Four, better exit planning. And five, more efficient social media marketing. Wow, wow, wow. Welcome to Mike Henneberry. So Mike, good to have you on the podcast and Look, I can see from your career that you've been quite involved in a number of things, you know. But obviously, you've also been involved in like uh, SME lending and 
and now you are um, a co-founder of Titan Partners. So just talk about your journey today in terms of business and finance. Thanks, Royston. Uh, pleasure to be here with you and uh, looking forward to our discussion. Um, I'll try and give you a, a kind of brief overview of my journey and then maybe we can dig a bit deeper into the areas that you think uh, you know, are more interesting for your, um, uh, for your viewers um, yes. and your listeners. Um, essentially, the common thread through my career has definitely been uh, working with and uh, uh, helping uh, the growth of small, medium enterprises. And uh, it all started off um, training as a chartered accountant in the, uh, in the late 80s uh, in, in Birmingham. And of course, a lot of the clients at that time of, of Arthur Anderson, which uh, of course is now part of Deloitte, were indeed small, medium enterprises. So that was my first uh, education ranging from uh, chemical companies, actually some fairly substantial chemical companies like Albright and Wilson, right the way through to the pop band UB40, which I'm sure wow. you'll be familiar with. So what a range of different businesses. To, yeah, well, so my first question uh, is kind of how would you think your your finance training, your accountancy training, but obviously I'm an accountant as well, how yeah. has that shaped your career? Well, I think, I think in a number of ways, and I think by far the most important um, influence was the people because, you know, one of the reasons I joined Arthur Anderson was uh, the people that I got to meet already even before joining, I could see had a certain sense of uh, drive and style about them. And, um, you know, that was born out when I joined the firm. I mean, Arthur Anderson did have a very strong culture. Uh, it's no coincidence, I, I think, that... Um, one of my colleagues from those days is now chairman of Deloitte Europe. It's a guy called Nick Cohen. Nick was actually wow. university with me and then joined Arthur Anderson, same time as me. He joined in London. I joined in Birmingham. So I was circulating with some very impressive people, both as peers. And then, you know, the guys I was learning from, the guys that were sort of two to five years ahead of me, many of them I'm still in touch with, um, you know, incredibly supportive at that stage of my career and certainly pushed me to drive towards higher academic goals. And of course I was studying until I was 25, I actually finished my uh, PE2 child accounts exam on the 12th of December, 1989, my 25th birthday. You know, and um, I remember walking out into the snow on the Hagley Road thinking, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully that's the last exam I ever take. And uh, sense, yeah. of course it pretty much was. Um, uh, but you know, incredible time because you're working sometimes 10, 12 hour days. And then, you know, if you include the sort of commuting to and from the client, and then, uh, you know, you're studying in the evenings and at the weekends, uh, look, I was getting football in too, but it was, it wasn't really much work-life balance. It was pretty much work and study yeah, balance. I know it is, man. You know, you put a life finance. around it. Yeah. Big, big, I think big sacrifice in your early 20s really to put the amount of time in. And I can assure you that I was no natural accountant. <laughs> So for me, it was quite a lot of hard work. And I've, and I've only realized in retrospect why, because I think as my career has developed, it's become more obvious that I'm much more of a creative than, than I am an accountant. So I was kind of battling with uh, the more structured side of uh, qualifying as an accountant. But of course, it's been a valuable training. But, um, you know, if you look at how my career developed from there into advising management teams on uh, management buyouts and then into investing as a private equity chief investment officer for 10 years at Gresham, then setting up my own credit fund in 2010 to 2012. That was a company called Palio. 
Uh, we were totally right about Palio. We saw the market for uh, leverage lending from institutions separate from banks. Yep. Uh, we saw that going up exponentially. And in fact, it did 10x over the 10 years following uh, setting up Palio. Unfortunately, uh, even the smart investors in London couldn't see it as clearly as I could at that time. It was an incredibly frustrating time. We must have met over 200 uh, limited partners at that time, and very few of them actually got uh, what we were talking about. By far the most evolved was actually Christine Panier at um, the European Investment Fund, who did back us in a private fund. Uh, but unfortunately, we couldn't get enough private investors around Christine to support that as an independent private company. So we pivoted and went for a listing. And uh, my listing was literally days away from being done, but I was scuppered by a rather, um, uh, how can I put it, incompetent regulator down in Guernsey, who I've only found out in retrospect in writing my book, Wrestling with Unicorns. Uh, I did a bit of research to actually figure out who was this regulator that kind of basically put our IPO on ice. I had a green light in London, you know, the most highly regulated market in the world, pretty much. Uh, but I got an amber light down in Guernsey and there was never a clear reason for that amber light, but it delayed my IPO by about two or three months. And of course, Shocking, man. you know, you can't do that with an IPO. You can't keep an IPO on ice. And I had over a million of my own money invested in getting that IPO done. And I well, think we'd have ended up with a billion AUM company. I mean, it was going to float with a hundred between 100 and 150 million under management day one, you know, that would easily be a billion under management by today, you know. But look, as I like to say, and I indeed I do say in the book, you know, even Jose Mourinho doesn't shoot the referee when he gets a bad decision, you know. You just have to dust yourself off and, and go again. again. Of course, um, you know what I mean? You know, we tried to launch that strategy on a French hedge fund. It should have worked. They were a liquid uh, lending hedge fund, uh, more than our kind of illiquid private equity strategy. Of course, they were French. We were British. I don't really need to say anymore. It just didn't work out. You know, it was a it was a clash of cultures: liquid versus illiquid, French versus British. You know, one of those things. I mean, I'm I'm sure they're very good guys, but we just couldn't see eye to eye. And we were putting up what I consider still today to be fantastic lending propositions, and they were just turning them down. I mean, companies like Mountain Warehouse. U switch. I mean, companies that were going through great growth profiles. Wow, wow. Delight, which is one of the leading uh, companies in the potteries, it was actually making the earthenware for the Kremlin. You know, so you, you can't get a much better client than that when it comes to making uh, earthenware. You know, it's been around for over 150 years. Delight. It's a brilliant company, very well run. It had been through two management buyouts, and actually, the management were taking it kind of independent. You know, they were buying out the private equity funds. You know, so anyway. We put up all these deals, none of them were getting approved. And uh, by then I realized that I was pushing water uphill. And, um, and what do you know, 2014, 15, I was a little bit bored having left the credit fund and I pivoted into e-commerce. What an amazing pivot that was. You know, I, mean, I th oh, cool. think that was a, either a stroke of genius <laughs> or, or something extremely impetuous or something halfway in between. But um, of course it took me into a whole new area. Uh, I'm not claiming to be a digital uh, e-commerce expert. Who is? I mean, really, that whole area has only been around for probably 10, 15 years maximum. Um, but we're all learning, you know, so I feel like I'm going to school every day in that business. Uh, I ended up in a company called Fabify, Fabify.com, where I'm still the second largest shareholder. Uh, we have plans to take that to the stock market in the next 18 months to two years, maybe a bit sooner. 
it's a company with an incredible scaling capability because um, we have this model where we can serve up uh, our consumers with uh, fashion apparel deals that they can't get anywhere else on the internet. And that's because we're partnering with big fashion brands who, who always every year have a lot of overstock. But of course, in the pandemic, they have more overstock than ever. So we're helping these big brands to liquidate that overstock by putting them in touch with cost-conscious consumers all over Europe. Although initially we're setting up in uh, Eastern Europe and we're doing that because we can get, um, we can acquire consumers more cheaply. Basically around 10% of the cost it would, it would uh, be to acquire consumers in Western Europe. So that's been a very interesting journey. It's taken us four or five years now to get that ready to scale. And when I say scale, this next 12 months, we're looking to go to 1 million revenue a month and then probably 2 million revenue a month within the next 12 months. That would have Perfect. us, just to give you an idea of what that means in sort of social media spend, that would have us going from spending something, I like to say investing because it's all based on data science. It's not spending, it's investing about 50,000 a month to begin with on Facebook ads and probably half a million sterling a month within 12 How big months. is your team? How big is your team to do that all that? Well, obviously the operational... Um, yeah, it's, op it's a great question. And, and I think my business partner, Phil Harwood, has set this up in a very uh, uh, evolved way because what we've done really is managed to outsource as much as we possibly can. Um, we actually got to the stage back in uh, Q4 2018 where we were doing around $100,000 a day in sales. And um, it was one of those only fools and horses moments. You know, Rodney, we're going to be millionaires. You know, we thought, wow, you know, 100000 a day. I mean, that's heading towards a $30 million revenue business in a, on a per annum basis, you know. But unfortunately, at that time, internal fulfillment, our own warehouse couldn't keep up with the pace of sales. And that led to late deliveries and a lot of cancelled orders. And one of the, actually, one of the beauties of our model is that we, rarely suffer from uh, returns, unlike many uh, fashion, fast fashion business models where typical returns can be as high as 30 or 40%. Our returns are well below two or 3%. But at that time, because of the slow deliveries, we got a lot of canceled orders. So we had to basically uh, switch off sales. Um, uh, we decided to do a number of things. We realized there were a number of things we needed to do to scale quickly. We had to put the business on a better platform. At that time, we were on Shopify which wasn't allowing, it, wasn't allowing us to check out in local currencies in different countries around Europe, which we needed to be able to do because our consumer base is paying cash at the door in countries like Bulgaria, Romania. Uh, they need to be able to pay in their local currency. So that was one thing, replatforming. Then we had to find an outsourced warehouse operation, uh, which took about nine to 12 months to find somebody we could rely on, found a fantastic business out in Bucharest. Uh, who are doing that for us now. Uh, and we also need to find a digital team, but by virtue of uh, hooking up with the uh, warehouse operations, the guy that runs that had actually run a company called uh, uh, Fashion Days in Romania, which was quite a successful high volume, low cost fashion scale up. And he connected us into about 10 members of the digital team. And, and by digital team, I mean people that were doing things like uh, multi-language websites in different countries. Uh, you imagine the detail around getting the product descriptions right, especially when you're uploading new stock every day. There's quite a lot of fluidity to the stock on these sites. So you need it's to get the journey, descriptions right? accurately. There are different terms and conditions legally in each country. So you need to get your T's and C's with the consumers right. 
Uh, there's a whole myriad of detail, but we were very lucky to inherit uh, eight to 10 members of his digital team from the fashion days. It's a bit like getting the band back together. And that was a bit of a stroke of luck really. And it's funny how on the journey you get amazing strokes of bad luck. And then of course, if you're patient, you get strokes of good luck too. And, um, and then the other thing that we did about 12 months ago is we started connecting with experienced executives in the fashion world who started joining us. Uh, we created this advisory board because there was no way we could afford to hire these guys full time. So we we're paying them part time and incentivizing them with some options. Uh, but they've been incredibly good. They've gone well beyond the call of duty in terms of their commitment to the business. And they've been very powerful in connecting us into big fashion brands all over Europe because the other critical thing that we needed to change was our supply chain had previously been coming from one company who is a business partner of ours and are very good at what they do, uh, which is basically multi-brand reseller wholesaling business. And they do that all over Europe, but they're a very offline business. And obviously they have a restricted supply being you know, one company. Uh, and really we knew what we needed to do was hook up with direct with, uh, with big fashion brands. And by virtue of connecting with our, um, with our uh, non-executives, uh, we've been able to do that. And, and we're now able to connect with any fashion brand in Europe. Well, I should um, emphasize that the typical uh, shop retail price for the kind of products we're selling is somewhere between 50 and 100 euros, maybe 25. What are you actually selling? What are you, what are you so actually selling? Fashion, fashion apparel. So it's everything that you would expect to find in, uh, you know, um, you know, a new look or a, uh, or a mango or a top shop or any, any of these, any of these fashion stores, what I would describe as mid market fashion stores. Uh, so the typical retail price in the store might be 25 to hundred euros, but on our site, you're probably seeing it at 60, 70, 80% off store price. What is your site? What is your site? It's called fabify.com. Yeah. Fabify, F-A-B-I-F-Y. Uh, so Fabify, just like Shopify, Spotify, we, great, I think it's a great, great name. Great, yeah. great we managed yeah. to pick that name up about 18 months ago. Uh, yeah, about two years ago, actually, we got that name. And, and, and so we also rebranded at the same time as we were doing all the other things because we, we previously had a name that we thought looked, felt quite good five years ago. And you're going to laugh at me, Royston, because it was called Black Betty, uh, <laughs> which, you know, came from Phil's appreciation of 70s uh, rock music but you could just imagine us trying to take that name to america in the context of black lives matter you know so yeah. we realized that wouldn't be a good idea and uh flipped it uh change your name right Spotify, yeah. yeah yeah so mike so so just concept time so if you step back right if you say if someone a business person right now you already have a business i mean maybe they're making i don't know a million turnover and they want to scale i mean what are some of the key sort of uh, lessons you say Mainly from a financial perspective or from a kind of a financial management perspective. What are some of the key yeah. uh, lessons you would say that you can, um, first, anyone listening to this can take away or think that they should have in their business, the thing that yeah. they should be looking at um, in terms of like making decisions? What are some of the key things that they should consider, yeah. mainly from a financial perspective? Totally. Well, there's a couple of things I'll show you to there, Royston. Um, when I joined um, the, the Fabify business, um, the first... Uh, tough conversation I had with uh, Phil Howard, who's the founder, was uh, was about the business model that he built because uh, the, the financial model. Because I said, "Look, Phil, speaking honestly," and I said, "Look, you know that's what you're paying me to do. Uh, we're not going to raise very much money with this business model, you know, with this financial model." So the first thing we did was invested quite a bit of time and effort, and probably a three-month project uh, 
to create a financial model that reflected our business model. Um, yep. uh, and, and, you know, the reason that was important was, A, it gave us uh, a much better insight into the way the business was going to scale and, and some of the key sensitivities. And we surprised ourselves on many occasions um, with, with the output from that model by, uh, by creating sensitivities and variability around certain inputs. It really shocked us at times. Yep just how sensitive our business was to certain aspects that Very important we had right, yeah. sensitivities, right? So, yeah. so it's really critical to have uh, a well thought through financial model right at the beginning, which, uh, which uh, gives you a picture of how your business uh, operates. And uh, obviously you need to figure out, you know, what the key sensitivities might be. Uh, and it's only when you start running what if scenarios with those sensitivities that you really see you know, where the, uh, the pinch points are. So that was yeah. the first thing I'd say. And then uh, latterly in the last sort of 18 months or so, because really this Fabify um, business is much more of an investment for me than a job now, um, because as it goes to an IPO, they need a, a proper CFO. And I'm, you know, I'm not really uh, the kind of CFO that's going to take a business to the stock market. I'm much yeah. more creative investment type of guy, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, rather than a sort of hands-on detail numbers guy, you know. So, I've got to thinking really what was my journey about and I started writing this book uh, wrestling with unicorns and really what I've how I've tried to design the book is as a playbook for owner managers to focus them in on some of the things that are critical in terms of growing and scaling and uh, what are those things three or four things that have emerged from that and the very first thing uh, is is innovation And, and it's really shocked me how um, universally, really, most companies, particularly small, medium enterprises, uh, don't know how to instill a culture of innovation. A lot of companies run in silos with one department not really speaking to another. Communication yeah, is that. inevitably poor in most companies. Um, people haven't really got common goals, um, certainly not a common understanding of what the short-term and long-term targets are. Uh, and this isn't almost, uh, again, universally not being driven down through the organization. And the reason I can tell you that is Gallup did a study and uh, over 70% of the global workforce is disengaged. So, you know, if you're running a business and you think your workforce is engaged, think again, because 70% of workforces are not engaged. And it's a pretty good, um, yeah, it's a pretty good starting right. point to try and engage your workforce, because guess what? Innovation is really about having a an efficient uh, and effective internal ideas machine. I agree. Uh, good ideas are being created. Uh, the not so good ones are getting shot down, but shot down objectively, you know, with uh, good creative thought. And the best ideas are getting uh, attracting to capital and time, you know, to get developed. But it takes. I completely agree. You know something, right? Only yesterday I was saying to some people that um, even though you run in a company, you have to allow your employees thinking time. You know, exactly time to sort of you know look out the window and just think and come up with ideas. To me, that is kind of the, the whole crunch point about being innovative. Would you agree? Totally, and it's very interesting you mentioned that because there was a book in you know, and sort of researching this, I've been looking at other books that have been written that might that might be relevant learning points. And there's a lady in America who wrote a book, uh, I think at least ten or fifteen years ago now about why California created so many unicorns in the 20 years after 1990, and yet Massachusetts didn't, because in the 80s, Massachusetts was the place that had most of the high-tech companies in America. And she concluded that it was really all down to the way that people collaborated in California. A, they were geographically a little bit closer together, 
but where they were uh, in those hubs around San Francisco and LA, they were often meeting in restaurants and bars and discussing ideas. And, and actually, collaboration uh, is a critical part of innovation. And, and really, Dr. Dave Richards, who works with me in the new company, Titan, Titan Partners, and, and Dave is a global thought leader on innovation, he very much pushes the fact that innovation is a, is a team game. It's a people thing, you know, and um, it only really works if you've got good communication systems and, and good understanding with, you know, within a business between the people. Oh, wow. Look, so talk to me, Michael. So, so what are some so one other thing I'd, One other thing I'd emphasize, Royston, is digitalization. So the vast majority of SMEs are not properly invested in digitalization. What am I talking about? Use of the cloud, website UX, development of applications, cybersecurity. Less than one in 10 SMEs is properly invested in digitalization. And um, yeah. we collaborate with a company. Technology, in right? Is all you're saying. Yeah, we collaborate in, uh, with a company in America called Superior Digital because obviously it's not our skill set that we bring them in. It's not a one-size-fits-all, obviously. Every company, depending on its sector, has different priorities. But Superior Digital work with us to help our clients to specify what's required digitally within their business to take yeah. it to the next yeah. level. So if a company is saying, right, okay, well, all these things are great, but I can't afford to you know, invest in this right now, right? I'm just going to lead me on to probably the next question. I mean, how would you advise for a business that wants to go big, you know, in terms of getting funding, uh, raising money? What are some of the kind of ideas you have around that based on your experience? How do you raise funds to get bigger? Yeah, that's a, it's a very good question. I think raising money is, is challenging. There's a, there's a chapter in the book where we, we talk about the pitch. Uh, and of course, the story is very important. You've got to understand how to articulate your story. One thing that's changed massively since uh, I started out in corporate finance in, in the early 1990s is, is the way those stories are depicted. You know, we used to send out 120-page information memorandum in the post to potential interested parties, and then three weeks later, we'd call them up and see who was interested in having a meeting. Nowadays, um, you know, potential investors need information in a digital form that's easily digestible, if you don't capture their imagination in the first few seconds, you've probably got three minutes maximum to get the attention of most investors with an, a, new, a new idea. That depends whether you've sent them some information digitally on an email, a video perhaps, or uh, a presentation pack, a deck, or maybe you're meeting them face-to-face uh, -face if you're lucky, but it's very rare that you get to do that straight away. Uh, so we have to make our pitches extremely easy to digest, infotaining and this is a whole business in itself and most companies these days almost need to have their own internal digital video production unit because yep. actually you'll reach out both to investors and to certainly business to business customers and clients is almost certainly going to be done through video through platforms like linkedin or uh, youtube certainly agree man you know so, I'm gonna put them videos out regular now, you know. Just to you know we're all having awareness to, videos. Yeah, you know, we're all having to get used to you know being in front of camera. I'm very fortunate that my son, who's 17, is he has a bit of a sort of a uh, a skill set in um, video production. He actually works for two years as kind of the apprentice at uh, a London-based film production company. So he's very comfortable with editing videos, the sound, the lighting. Unfortunately, Royston, he's used to working with professional actors in front of camera <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he has to work with me now so that's one limiting factor but uh you know we're we're actually working quite well as a team and um 
I've got my two colleagues creating video for the new Titan website. And of course, Matthew's, uh, he's editing most of yeah. that. And so it's, it's, you kind of need that service in house these days, you know? So, Mike, so just before to wrap up, um, I think I'm going to have to get you on again, man. You so you have so much of information and so much of experience. It's hard to cover, like, in this, like, you know, 30 minutes. But um, what I wanted to ask you, like, what, what would be your most difficult challenge along your way in terms of um, the journey? Yeah, and how did you overcome it or what did you take from it in terms of the lessons learned? Yeah, I think the, the, path to, the path to success is littered with failure, <laughs> is the truth, you know, so... When things don't go right, uh, you know, it's a real time to, to test your self-belief and to persevere. And I think um, most successful people have had to wrestle with setbacks along the journey. And it's how you deal with the setbacks that defines you, I think. And, uh, you know, the paleo one was a good example. You know, I could have just shut up shop and gone to the beach and said enough's enough. But, um, you know, that's not in my nature, you know, and... Uh, uh, and so I dusted myself down and uh, and got involved in e-commerce. You know, I, I I sensed it was time for a, a bit of a pivot, you know, and a change of direction. And uh, you know, quite fortuitously, I think 2015 was a pretty good time to to get into e-commerce. I think we, you know we also have to trust our intuition in these things, you know, because that was a bit of an intuitive move, potentially a bit impetuous. And that's the first thing I went into. I lost money, of course I did. You know, I didn't really understand e-commerce. But if I hadn't been in that business, which was based out in Sofia in Bulgaria, I would never have met Phil Howard because that's how I met him. We met out there in, uh, you know, two guys from London and we met in Sofia, you know. So it's funny how life works, you know. But um, I think the most important thing is self-belief, perseverance. Of course. Yeah. Self-belief, I agree, man. I agree. So, look, Mike, um, it's been great, man, to have you. I will ask you one final question. Uh, hopefully you can answer it in a minute or so. What does financial intelligence mean to you? Good question. I think um, a number of things for me because it's what the, the first thing is you've got to be able to interpret the numbers. So you've got to be able to interpret a profit and a loss account, a balance sheet, uh, and a P&L. And the way I like to think of it is that the balance sheet is just a photograph on one day. Um, the P&L uh, tells you the profit, but it's the cash flow that's the most important. Because I agree. You know, cash is king, you know. And, cash is always uh, king, man. And, and when I was training uh, in corporate recovery with Arthur Anderson, I, my training with Arthur Anderson was split in two, two years audit, two years corporate recovery. The first thing we do when we went into any business that was struggling was to run a 13-week forward cash flow. I agree. It was surprising how few companies did that and were doing it. And then it was surprising what, you know, that exercise threw up, you know. And so, still not doing it, actually. Many companies yeah, are not actually still, projecting. It's still not a practice. No, I yeah. agree. It's, it's absolutely critical. And, and then, of course, there is another one absolutely critical aspect, and that is the capability to make decisions. And Jeff Bezos talks about, you know, the fact that we're moving into an era now where the successful companies have to make high-velocity decisions, often only with 60 or 70% of the information that you need at hand, but you can't afford to wait till you've got hundred percent of the information because slow is deadly. And I, I think agree. this is also very important, you know. I agree. Yeah. So Mike, look, I'm gonna for now, I'm gonna wrap up for now. Um, but I want to say thank you. Thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. And we're gonna be obviously connecting with you again and probably I'm working with you offline as well. It's been really great to have you, and um, we are going to be speaking, no doubt, uh, very soon. Thanks, so, Roy. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks a lot.
Thank you very much for listening to my podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. You can find out more about me by Googling my name, Royston Cumberbatch. I'm on all the social media, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can find me on YouTube as Roy Cumberbatch. And if you are listening on YouTube, please hit that uh, subscribe button. Or you can find me on my website at www.ratmac.com. That's R-A-C-M-A-C-S dot com. It'd be great to hear from you. And do feel free to tell me about any topics you want me to cover on future episodes. Until next time, be good to yourself and others. Keep positive and reaching for your financial goals. Bye-bye.